Section 8 of Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Tomko. Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 2, by Thomas Stevens. Chapter 4, Part 2, Through Khorasan. Six farsakhs bring me to Abbasabad, the last of the four stations of terror. A lank villager is on the lookout a couple of miles west of the place, the people having been apprised of my coming by some travellers who left Miandasht yesterday evening. Tucking the legs of his pantaloons in his waistband, leaving his legs bare and unencumbered, he follows me at a swinging trot into the village, and pilots me to the caravanserai. The population of the place was found occupying their house-stops, and whatever points of vantage they can climb to awaiting my appearance, their curiosity having been wrought to the highest pitch by their informants' highly exaggerated accounts of what they might expect to see. The prevailing color of the female costume is bright red, and the swarms of these gaily dressed people congregated on the housetops and mingled promiscuously with the dark gray of the mud walls and domes makes a picture long to be remembered. And long also to be remembered is the reception awaiting me inside the caravanserai yard. The surging, pushing, struggling, shouting mob, among whom I notice, with some wonderment and speculation, a far larger proportion of blue-eyed people than I have hitherto seen in Persia. Upon inquiry, it is learned that Abbasabad is a colony of Georgians, planted and subsidized here by Shah Abbas the Great, as a check on the Turkomans, whose frequent alamans rendered the roads hereabouts well-nigh impassable for caravans. These warlike mountaineers were brought from the Caucasus and colonized here, with lands, exemption from taxes, and given an annual subsidy. They were found to be of good service as a check on the Turkomans, but were not much of an improvement upon the Turkomans themselves in many respects. As seen in the caravanserai today, they seem a turbulent, headstrong crowd of people accustomed to be petted and to do pretty much as they please. At the caravanserai is a traveller who says he hails from the Pishan Valley, and he produces a certificate in English, recommending him as a stonemason. The certificate settles all doubts of his being from India, for were one to meet an Hindustani in the classic shades of purgatory itself, he would immediately produce a certificate recommending him for something or other. As the crowd surge and struggle for some position around me, where they can enjoy the exquisite delight of seeing me sip tiny glasses of scalding hot tea, prepared by the enterprising individual who met me two miles out, the Pishan Valley man tries to look amused at them, and to rise superior to the situation, as becomes a person to whom a sahib, and whatever wonderful things he may possess, are nothing extraordinary. The crowd seem very loath to let such an extraordinary thing as the bicycle and its rider depart from among them so soon, although at the same time anxious to see me speed along the smooth, straight trails that, fortunately, lead directly from the caravanserai eastward. 
Scores of the shouting, yelling mob race, barefooted and bare-legged, over the stones and gravel alongside the bicycle, until I can put on a spurt and outdistance them, which I take care to do as soon as practicable, thankful to get away and eat the bread pocketed in disgust at the caravanserai in the peace and quietude of the desert. Beyond Abbasabad, my road skirts Mazanan Lake to the north, passing between the slimy mud-flats of the lake shore and the ever-present Elbers foothills, and then through several wholly ruined or partially ruined villages to Mazanan, where I arrive about sunset, my wheel yet again a mass of mud, for the Mazanan Lake country is a muddy hole in spring. A drizzling rain ushers in the dusky shades of the evening as I repair to the Shaparkana, a wretched hole in a most dilapidated condition. The Balakana is little better than being out of doors. The roof leaks like a colander. The windows are mere unglazed holes in the wall, and the doors are but little better than the windows. It promises to be a cold, drafty, comfortless night, and the prospects for supper look gloomy enough in the light of smoky camel-thorn and no samovar to make a cup of tea such is the peerless prospect confronting me after a hard day's run when soon after dark a man arrives with a thrice welcome invitation from a russian officer who he says is staying at the caravanserai the officer he says has pilau kebabs wine plenty of everything and would be glad if i would bring my machine and come and accept his hospitality for the night under the circumstances nothing could be more welcome news than this and picturing to myself a pleasant evening with a genial hospitable gentleman i take the bicycle down the slippery and broken mud stairway and follow my guide through drizzling rain and darkness over ditches and through miry byways to the caravanserai the officer is found squatting, Asiatic-like, on his menzel floor, his overcoat over his shoulders. He is watching his cook broiling kebabs for his supper. It is a cheery, hopeful prospect, the glowing charcoal fire sparkling in response to the vigorous waving of half a saddle flap, the savory sizzling kebabs and the carpeted menzel in comparison with the dreary tumble-down place I have just left. My first impression of the officer himself, however, is scarcely so favorable as my impression of the picture in which he is set, the picture I just described. A sinister leer characterizes the expression of his face, and what appears like a nod, with an altogether unnecessary amount of condescension in it, characterizes his greeting. Hopping down to the ground, lamp in hand, he examines the bicycle minutely, and then, indirectly addressing the bystanders, he says, Pooh! This thing was made in Tiflis. There's hundreds of them in Tiflis. Having delivered himself of this lying statement, he hops up on the menzel front again, and, without paying the slightest attention to me, resumes his squatting position at the fire, and his occupation of watching the preparations of his cook. Nothing is more evident to me than that he had never before seen a bicycle, and astounded at this conduct on the part of an officer who doubtless thinks himself a civilized being, even though he might not understand anything of our own conception of an officer and a gentleman. I begin looking around for an explanation from the fellow who brought me the invitation, thinking there must be some mistake. The man has disappeared and is nowhere to be found. 
The Chaparji accompanied us to the caravanserai, and seeing that this man has bolted, and that the Russian officer's intentions toward me are anything but hospitable, he calls the missing man, or the officer, I don't know which, a Pedar Sukhtar, son of a burnt father, and suggests returning to the cold comfort of the Balakana. My own feelings upon realizing that this wretched, unscrupulous Muscovite has craftily designed and executed this plan for no other purpose but to insult and humiliate me, whom he took for granted to be an Englishman, in the eyes of the Persian travelers present, I prefer to pass over and leave to the reader's imagination. After sleeping on it and thinking it over, early next morning I returned to the caravanserai, bent on finding the fellow who brought the invitation, giving him a thrashing, and seeing if the officer would take it up in his behalf. In the morning, the Cossack said he had gone away. Whether gone away or hiding somewhere in the caravanserai, he was nowhere to be found, which perhaps was just as well, for the affair might have ended in bloodshed, and in a fight the chances would have been decidedly against myself. This incident disagreeable though it be to think of is instructive as showing the possibilities for mean and contemptible action that may lurk beneath the uniform of a russian officer russian officers as a general thing however it is but fair to add would show up precisely the reverse of this fellow under similar circumstances being genial and hospitable to a fault still i venture that in no other army in the world reckoning itself civilized could be found even one officer capable of displaying just such a spirit as this the unwelcome music of pattering rain and flowing water in the concert i have to sit and listen to all the forenoon and to glance outside is rewarded by the dreariest of prospects the landscape, as seen from my lone and miserable lookout, consists of grey mud-fields and grey mud-ruins, wet and slimy with the constant rains, occasional barley-fields mosaic the dreary prospect with bright green patches, but across them all, the mud-flats, the ruins, and the barley-fields, the driving rain sweeps remorselessly along, and the wind moans dismally. There is only one corner of my room proof against the drippings from the roof, and through the wretched apologies for doors and windows, the driving rain comes in. Everything seems to go wrong in this particular place. I obtain tea and sugar, but there is no samovar, and the chapar G attempts to make it in an open kettle. The result is sweetened water, lukewarm and smoky. I then send for pomegranates, which turn out to be of a sour, uneatable variety. But worse than all is the dreary consciousness of being hopelessly imprisoned for an uncertain period. It grows gradually colder, and toward noon the rain changes to snow. The cold and the penetrating snow drive me into the shelter of the ill-smelling stables. It blows a perfect hurricane all the afternoon, accompanied by fitful squalls of snow and hail, and the same program continues the greater part of the night. But in the morning, I am thankful to discover that the wind has dried the surface sufficiently to enable me to escape from my mud-environed prison and its uncongenial associations. Before getting many miles from Mazanan, I encounter the startling novelty of streams of liquid mud, rolling their thick yellow flood over the plain in treacly waves, traveling slowly, like waves of molten lava. The mud is only a few inches deep, 
but the streams overspread a considerable breadth of country, as my road is some miles from where they leave the mountains, and they seem to have no well-defined channels to flow in. A stream of slimy yellow mud, two hundred yards wide, is a most disagreeable obstacle to overcome with a bicycle, but confined in narrow, deep channels, the conditions would be infinitely worse. It is a dreary and forbidding stretch of country hereabout. The carcasses of camels that have dropped exhausted by the roadside are frequently passed, and jackals feasting on them slink off at my approach. Watch my progress passed with evident impatience, and then return again to their feast. Occasional stretches of very fair wheeling are passed over, and at six farsacks I reach Mare, the usual combination of brick caravanserai and mud village. Here a halt is made for tea and such rude refreshments as are obtainable, consuming them in the presence of the usual sore-eyed and miserable-looking crowd, more than one poor wretch appealing to me to cure his rapidly failing sight. A gleam of warm sunshine brightens my departure from Mare, and, after shaking off several following horsemen, the going seems quite pleasant, the wheeling being very good indeed. The mountains off to the left are variegated, and beautiful on the lower and intermediate slopes, and are crested with snow, scudding cloudlets, whose multiform shadows are continuously climbing up and over the mountains, produce a pleasing kaleidoscope effect, and here and there a sunny, glistening peak rises, superior to the changeful scenes below. Sheepskin busbied shepherds are tending flocks of very peculiar-looking sheep on this plain, the first of the kind I have noticed. The fatty continuation of the body, popularly regarded as an abnormal growth of tail, is wanting. But what is lacking in this respect is amply compensated for in the pendulous ears. These members hanging almost to the ground, they have a goatish appearance generally, and may possibly be the result of a cross. Herds of antelopes also frequent this locality, which by and by develops into a level mud-plain that affords smooth and excellent wheeling, and over which I take the precaution of making the best time possible, conscious that a few minutes' rain would render it impassable for a bicycle. And wild windstorms are even now careening over it, accompanied by spits of snow and momentary squalls of hail. A lone minar, looming up directly ahead like a tall factory chimney, indicates my approach to Subzawar. The minaret is reached by sunset. It turns out to be a lone shrine of some imam, from which it is yet two farsakhs to Subzawar. The wheeling from this point, however, is very good, and I roll into Subzawar, or at least up to its gate, for Subzawar is a walled city, shortly after dark. Sharab, native wine, they tell me, is obtainable in the bazaar, but when I inquire the price per bottle, with a view of sending for one, several eager aspirants for the privilege of fetching it shout out different prices, the lowest figure mentioned being three times the actual price. Being rather indifferent about the doubtful luxury of drinking wine for the amusement of an eagerly curious crowd, which I know only too well beforehand, will be my unhappy portion. I conclude, to chagrin and disappointment, the whole dishonest crew by doing without. 
one gets so thoroughly disgusted with the ever-present trickery, dishonesty, and prying, unrestrained curiosity of the ragged, sore-eyed, and garrulous crowds that gather about one at every halting-place, that a person actually comes to prefer a mere crust of bread in peace by a roadside pool to the best a city bazaar affords. A well-dressed individual makes his salam and introduces his person upon the scene of my early preparations to depart on the following morning, and, when I start, takes upon himself the office of conducting me through the labyrinthian bazaar and to the gate of exit beyond. I am wondering somewhat who this individual may be, and wherefore the officiousness of his demeanor to the crowd at our heels. But his mission is soon revealed, for on the way out he pilots me into the courtyard of the race, or mayor of the city. The rays receives me with the glad and courteous greeting of a person desirous of making himself agreeable and of creating a favorable impression. Trays of sweetmeats are produced, and tea is served up in little porcelain cups. As soon as tea and sweetmeats and callions appear on the board, molas and seyuds mysteriously begin to put in an appearance likewise filing noiselessly in and taking their places near or distant from the rays according to their respective rank and degree of holiness my observations everywhere in the land of the lion and the sun all tend to the conclusion that whatever and wherever a samovar of tea begins to sing its cheery and aromatic song and the soothing hubble bubble of the kalian begins telling its seductive tale of solid comfort and social intercourse a huge green or white turban is certain to appear on the scene a robed figure steps out of its slippers at the door glides noiselessly inside puts its hand on its stomach salams and drops as silently as a ghost might in a squatting attitude among the guests Hardly has this one taken his position than another one appears at the door and goes through precisely the same program, followed shortly afterward by another, and yet others. These foxy-looking members of the Persian priesthood always seem to me to possess the faculty of scenting these little occasions from afar and of following their noses to the place with unerring precision. Upon emerging from the shelter of the city and adjacent ruins, I find myself confronted by a furious headwind, against which it is quite impossible to ride, and almost impossible to trundle. During the forenoon I meet on the road a disgraced official in the person of the Asaf-i-Dawle, Governor-General of Gorasan, returning to Tehran from Meshed, having been recalled at New Year's by the Shah to give an account of himself for oppressing the people, insulting the Prophet, and intriguing with the Russians. The Asaf-i-Dawle made himself very obnoxious to the priests and people of the holy city by arresting a criminal within the place of refuge at Imam Riza's tomb and by an outrageous devotion to his own pecuniary interests at the public expense. Riots occurred, the mob taking possession of the telegraph office and smashing the windows because they fancied their petition to the Shah was being tampered with. A timely rainstorm dispersed the mob and gave time for the Shah's reply to arrive, promising the Asaf-i-Dawla's removal and disgrace. The ex-governor is in a carriage drawn by four greys. His own women are in gaily gilded taktoans, upholstered with crimson satin. 
The women of his followers occupy several pairs of kajaves, and the household goods of the party follow behind in a number of huge Russian forgans or wagons, each drawn by four mules abreast. Besides these are a long string of pack camels, mules, and attendants on horseback, forming altogether the most imposing cavalcade I have met on a Persian road. How they manage to get the heavily loaded forgans and the governor's carriage over such places as the pass near Lasgird is something of a mystery, but there may be another route. At any rate, hundreds of villagers would be called out to assist. An opportunity also presents this morning of seeing the amount of obstinacy and perverseness that manages to find lodgment within the unsightly curves and angles of a runaway camel. A riding camel, led by its owner, scares at the bicycle and, breaking away, leads him a lively chase through a belt of low sand ridges near the road, jolting various packages off his back as he runs. Every time the man gets almost within seizing distance of the rope, the contrary camel starts off again in a long, awkward lope, slowing up again as though maliciously inviting his owner to try it over again when he has covered a couple of hundred yards. These maneuvers are repeated again and again until the chase has extended to perhaps four miles, when a party of travelers assist in rounding him up. The man then has to re-traverse the whole four miles and gather up the things. A late luncheon of bread, warm from the oven, is obtained at the village of Lafaram, where I likewise obtain a peep behind the scenes of everyday village life, and see something of their mode of baking bread. The walled village of Lafaram presents a picture of manure heaps, holes of filthy water, mud hovels, naked, sore-eyed youngsters, unkempt, unwashed, bedraggled females, goats, chickens, and all the unsavory elements that enter into the composition of a wretched, semi-civilized community. With bare, uncombed heads, bare-armed, bare-breasted, and bare-limbed, and with their nakedness scarcely hidden beneath a few coarse rags, some of the women are engaged in making and baking bread, and others in the preparation of tezek from cow manure and chopped straw. In carrying on these two occupations, the women mingle, chat, and help each other with happy-go-lucky indifference to consequences, and with a breezy unconsciousness of there being anything repulsive about the idea of handling hot cakes with one hand and tezek with the other. The ovens are huge jars partially sunk in the ground. Fire is made inside and the jar heated. Flat cakes of dough are then stuck to the inside of the jar a few minutes sufficing for the baking. The hand and arm the woman inserts inside the heated jar is wrapped with old rags and frequently dipped in a jar of water standing by to keep it cooled. The bread thus baked tastes very good when fresh, but it requires a stomach rendered unsqueamish by dire necessity to relish it after seeing it baked. The plain beyond Lafaram assumes the character of an acclivity that in four farsacks terminates in a pass through a spur of hills. The adverse wind blows furiously all day and shows no sign of abating as the dusk of evening settles down over the landscape. A wayside caravanserai is reached at the entrance to the pass, and I determine to remain till morning. Here I meet with a piece of good fortune in a small way, in the shape of a leg of wild goat obtained from a native Nimrod, 
A thin rod of iron, obtained from the Sarai G, serves for a skewer, and I spend the evening in roasting and eating wild goat kebabs, while a youth fans the little charcoal fire for me with the soul of an old jive. End of section 8 Recording by William Tomko